today we continue in our series, which is titled Rhythms. Now, Rhythms is, uh, is a series that we're in this summer where we're talking and trying to think deeply about the rhythms of our life, how we work, why we work, how we rest, how do we play, what is it that refreshes us, and why does it refresh, refresh us? And, and perhaps most importantly, what does the gospel have to say to all of those things? Now, this series is a little bit more unusual for us in that we are not teaching straight through a Bible book. This is more of a, a systematic theology where we're looking at different passages. And I want to say that the church... The church must do, from time to time, systematic theology, particularly if it wants to understand different doctrines of Scripture, which is part of what we're trying to accomplish this morning. This morning, we want to look at the doctrine of calling, of calling. And so I want want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah 43, I'm only going to read read one passage, and that's verse number 1 from Isaiah 43. title of the message this morning is, Is My Mechanic Called? Is My Mechanic Called? And I want to plug it at verse 1 of Isaiah 43. We'll read that verse, and then I will pray, and that verse will also appear on the screens overhead. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's pray. Lord, we come again to your table. We come famished with an appetite that needs you. We come thirsting with a desire to to have our thirst slaked through your word moving through us. Lord, help us this morning to understand a little bit what it, of what it means to, to be called according to Scripture. And allow the reality of this doctrine to be brought to bear on our soul. Lord, not just that we would be more informed about a certain doctrine, but that, that, that we would draw encouragement and consolation that we would be lifted up, and that you, as a result, would grow bigger to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start with what I think is the most basic question here. And that is, what does it mean for a Christian to be called? Because calling is one of those kind of flexible metaphors in Scripture that can kind of bend and stretch in, in different directions. Some people see calling as, 
as a, a quest that we go on or a cause that we're invited into. So on August 28th of 1963, when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King stood before 250,000 civil rights workers, and he proclaimed, I have a dream, he was calling people to a quest. He was calling people to a great cause. He was inviting them to take it up and to walk with it. Or when George Mallory was asked in 1924 by a New York Times reporter why he felt compelled to climb Mount Everest, he retorted with those famous three words, because it's there, because it's there. But, but what was behind those three words is this sense that the, this mountain that stands before me issues a quest to me. It's beckoning me. It's drawing me to itself. It's calling me to climb. So is that what we're talking about here? You know, people accepting the burden for some great cause. Is that what a call is? Sinclair Ferguson once said, quote, one of the New Testament's most frequent one-word descriptions of the Christian is that he is called. So it's pretty important that we get this one right. It's pretty important that we understand what we mean when we say this word, called. So what does it mean for the Christian to be called? Well, other people see it as a kind of divine summons that comes for a smaller group of people, maybe those that are called into full-time vocational ministry. You might hear somebody say, I've received the call. It's a kind of divine subpoena that, that one receives from God for ministry. We walk through our foyer and we see all the pictures on the wall of extraordinary people who have accepted a call to make incredible sacrifices to be missionaries in other places. They've received a kind of call to do that. Is that what it means? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a celebrated physician in London, but only two years into his practice, he found himself totally occupied with what he described as an incurable illness that he confronted in each and every patient. In fact, he said it was an incurable illness that he could not heal. That incurable illness was sin. And he saw sin in every person. And he began to have this haunting idea that began to preoccupy his mind. And that is that he felt like he was healing people only to have them return to sin. And that if he only addressed the physical and didn't address the spiritual, that somehow he wasn't fulfilling the very purpose for which he existed. And so eventually this whole line of thought formed into a powerful call upon the life of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he decided that God was calling him to become another kind of physician. Not a physician of the body, but a physician of the soul. Maybe that's what this means, this whole idea of calling. You know, to, to be called as a summons to ministry like D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, like Charles Spurgeon, like, like Pastor Scott, who was up here earlier, who works so earnestly and diligently in this local church. But the problem is that that particular definition raises some 
complexities, because that would mean that only pastors, only missionaries are the ones that are, are really called. And the issue, according to Scripture, I want to say, is far more complicated than that. I mean, I had work done on my car recently, and the mechanic that I went to, oh my goodness, this guy did a masterful job fixing a very vexing engine problem that I had. And as I began listening to him and engaging him and talking to him over several occasions, and then seeing his work, I realized, okay, this guy's gifted, he is helpful, he is joyful. In fact, I wish I preached as well as he fixed cars. And so I ask you, is my mechanic called? Because if he's not, he should be. And maybe I shouldn't be. What in the world does this mean to be called? And how in the world does it relate to this theme of our rhythms in life? In Scripture, calling takes two general meanings. And I want to summarize them for you in this way. Number one, calling is God's summon to the Savior. And number two, calling is God's summon to his service. God's summon to the Savior, God's summon to his service. Those are the two meanings that we find in Scripture for this idea of calling. And so I want to break those apart and look at them a little bit, starting with meaning number one, God's summon to the Savior. Now, let me ask you to do an exercise. I mean, just think back. Imagine. Can you, can you remember the day, the event, the season, the message, the, the year where you felt directly and personally invited and drawn toward Jesus? Do you remember that? Can you go back there in your mind? You know, for some of us, it was this dramatic experience that became this life-defining event that marked us in some way. It was, there was desperation, there was emotion, there was a kind of immediate commitment. We turned immediately and walked away from things that defined us in the past. For others of us, it was more subtle, more nuanced. It was a kind of slow dawning over a year or so, a, a season of stops and starts and moving forward, and what, two steps forward, one step back. But nevertheless, the, the undercurrent, the subtext of that whole thing was this irresistible drawing in God's direction, this sense that there was a beacon within us that was being drawn, and we couldn't deny it, we couldn't stop it. And all of the things that once gave us pleasure no longer satisfied us in the way they once did. When we lived in Philadelphia, we, our house lived right under a migration path for geese. And every fall, there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of geese that would fly directly over our house in October and November. And there was something, apparently, that was embedded in the very DNA of these geese that just instinctively drew them in a direction. And so every year they were headed there because there was some sonar, there was something 
something, some echo in, within them that had to go in that direction. Yeah, that was my story. I was a student at college. I was having a blast. I was enjoying myself. I did not hit the bottom of the barrel. But there were these questions of meaning that just would not be pushed aside. And so when I would come home at night and oftentimes stoned, I would lay there and these questions would begin to surface. And this idea that there's got to be more to life than something like this. There's got to be more to life than what I'm doing. They began to push me. They began to draw me. They began to open my eyes and... and And make me feel like unless I began moving towards God, I was missing something glorious. Now, it might surprise us, but in Scripture, calling is not first a cause we choose. It's not a ministry we choose. It's not something that we pursue ourselves. Calling in Scripture is first something that's done for us. It's something that's done for us, which is why I wanted you to open to Isaiah 43, because this passage captures the essence of calling when God says, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Calling is God laying claim upon us. Call is God getting real personal and not just saying, no, not, just not your group. I'm not just talking about your family. I'm not talking about your race or your tribe. I'm talking about you. I call you. I want you. I choose you. See, this doctrine of calling starts with that undeniable truth that God called us to Himself. We have been summoned to the Savior. That's the glorious beginning of this doctrine. And believe me, you start pondering that, and this is where the mind just begins to boil and, you know, spill over onto the stove because of all the places it takes you. Because long before you were born, you were loved. Long before you were born, you were being talked about between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Long before you were born, you were set apart. Long before you were born, you were called. And then once you were born, in the fullness of time, at a moment or during a season, you began hearing it. Faint whisper at first, this this voice, this sense, this, this thing that wouldn't go away that was taking you in a certain direction. And the way it came to us was through the gospel itself. The gospel was the voice of God to us. The gospel was the power of God that broke through to us. This is how Paul says it to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, quote, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel. We have been called by God. We have been called to God by the gospel of God. 
by the news, the wonderful news, the reality of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, the claim that makes upon us. We have been called effectively. We have been called permanently. Theologians call this, this calling, this drawing, an effective calling. That word is oftentimes put in front of it, the effective calling. Effective calling is simply where God speaks through the gospel to call people to himself so that they respond in faith and repentance. In other words, this calling is effective. That God calls us so decisively through the gospel that we are capable of responding to him through faith and repentance. See, when, when Christ broke the power of death, when he pushed that stone away and emerged from the grave, and eventually, 40 days later, ascended on high, that triggered the coming of the Holy Spirit of God, which then connected the people of God back to God because, because the, the Holy Spirit enabled the people to hear God. Enabled the people to hear the Gospel. The Holy Spirit gave us ears to hear, even in a fallen world. Even in all the clutter that, that goes on, even in all the distraction, the Spirit is always there giving the most power by giving us ears to hear. Now, I realize you're sitting there saying, hey, Dave, you know, this is mildly interesting you know, doctrine stuff, but what does it have to do with this work thing? What does it have to do with rest and rhythms and the kind of things that that I'm living in today on Sunday afternoon, or that I go back to on Tuesday morning. Well, let me talk to you about some specifics about what this doctrine of calling elicits from us, or what it declares to us. I've got two points here, two sub-points. First is this, that this calling, God summons, this calling fixes God at the center of our life. It fixes God at the center of our life. And that's really important because it's incredibly tempting to hear the news of God's call and to think that, you know, this must, must mean that we're pretty special. This must mean that, you know, we are really something and, you know, we're kind of the trophy that God is giving himself because we are so special and we sparkle with, in such a delightful way before God. And it is true, you know, human beings are set apart. We are different than the animals. We, are, we have an inexplicable value to God. He, he set his everlasting love upon us. The very hairs on our head are numbered. But the primary point behind the doctrine of calling is not to certify our significance. Like we're some kind of mind-blowing deal that Jesus just had to have. Got us on eBay, couldn't turn it away. Too amazing. All these human beings, such a great price. You know, I was once talking to a lawyer who was a very well-connected guy. In fact, he was, he was at this time an attorney for a sitting president. And he was telling me the story about how one night he was stuck in a hotel room and he had the flu. And he ended up being stuck in this hotel for three days, couldn't do any work, just in bed, unable to move. 
And he said, you know what happened? I said, no, what happened? He said, well, on the second night, the phone rang. He said it was about 1 o'clock in the morning. He said, the phone rang. I picked it up, and on the other end of the line, the operator said, hold for the president. And he said, I immediately jumped out of bed, and I stood there at attention in my boxer shorts because I realized I was going to be talking to the president. And he said, but I still had a fever. And so when the president came on the line, I was so overwhelmed. And I, I said to him, Mr. President, I, I, you know, I'm just standing here in my boxers. I don't know what to say. And I, I mean, you could just imagine the president kind of looking at the phone and like. But this man be, went on to tell me some of the, th- the reason why the president was calling him, which was to inquire because he had heard that he was ill and he just wanted to know how he was doing. And as I began listening, and I continued to listen to the story by this lawyer, it it began to occur to me that for the lawyer, this story had nothing to do with him. This story had nothing to do with the fact that he was someone who was called. This story had everything to do with the caller himself. And in fact, he went on relating to me how, how kind it was, how thoughtful it was, how amazing it was that the president would take the time to know that one of his lawyers was not feeling well to get the information for the hotel and to call him. And it was, there was a sense where I became aware that this, this lawyer thought the president was even bigger than he was before because that call said much about the caller. See, the point I'm trying to make is that this doctrine fixes the Savior at the center. It doesn't fix the sinners at the center. It fixes the Savior at the center. Because for us to hear the voice of God, for us to hear the caller's voice, something dramatic had to happen. The caller had to come in flesh. The caller had to live a life of of perfect obedience. He had to walk according to the law. He had to endure every temptation. He had to walk toward the cross. I mean, I was looking at the paper yesterday. Undoubtedly, you have heard by now that Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor who wrote that haunting book, Night, has passed away. It happened yesterday. And I was reading an obituary in yesterday's paper in the New York Times, and there was this one line. There was this one line where the, where the author of the obituary said about Wiesel. He said, what gave him his moral authority in particular was that Mr. Wiesel had lived the hell of Auschwitz, Auschwitz, in his flesh, in his flesh, because he had been there. He was a survivor. He had seen horrific things. But I read that, and I thought, yeah, that's a really good line. But then I began to think, you know what? We serve a Savior who lived the hell of hell in his flesh. He lived the hell of hell in his flesh. In other words, he he. He fulfilled every law. He was always kind. He always served. He never sinned. And for that, he was taken to a cross. He was tortured. He was maimed. He was beaten. He was ultimately crucified. 
by those who were sinners. And he did all of that so that you and I could hear the call. So that you and I could hear when the caller speaks, when the caller whispers. See, that call, that says a lot about the caller. And it says maybe a little bit about us. So this doctrine of calling fixes God at the center of our life. And then my second sub-point, under the fact that we're summoned to the Savior, my second point, sub-point is that calling levels the playing field on our roles. Calling levels the playing field on all roles. So if God is at the center and God is the point, then our primary calling is the same regardless of the role that we play, regardless of whether that is in the church or in the world or in the government. And that call is to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love others as we do ourselves and to savor what Jesus Christ did for us when he died for us upon the cross. Which means then that every call we receive as human beings, whether it's a call to politics, whether it's a call to be a stay-at-home mom, whether it's a call to be a student or in ministry, regardless of what that call is, it is first a call to Jesus Christ. It is first a call to Jesus Christ. So, So the question of my title, is my mechanic called? And is he called in the same way that a pastor might be called or a man or a woman in the military might be called or somebody in the Peace Corps or a missionary might be called? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Because the fundamental call of every role is equal. Whether your degree is in biology or Bible, every role is equal. And that is the call to exalt and enjoy the caller and bring the reality of that enjoyment and reflect that enjoyment in the rhythms of the life that God has given us. So the first call is that God summons us to the Savior. And that first call, by the way, that determines who we are equalizes all of us, but it sets the stage for the second call, which plots the course for our life. So the second call, the meaning of the second call, is God's summon to service. I said earlier that that the call in Scripture has two meanings. It's God's summons to the Savior. The second meaning is God's summon to His service. See, with God, calling is not this one-time event. You know, like we get it in salvation and then God just moves on. You know, God gives us kind of heavenly CPR. He brings us back from death to life. And then he says, okay, I've done all I can. Be on your way and you just meander aimlessly through the rest of your life. No, the summons to the Savior results then in a summons to his service. Now, that service can be a bit nuanced, and that's where we want to unpack this a little bit more, because that service has two different 
paths to it, a twin heartbeat to it. Now, let's, let's talk about the path to it. It's the path toward our heart, and it's the path toward our work. So when we talk about being summoned to service, we're talking about two different paths that it creates, the path into our heart, an internal one, and then a path towards our work, which is an external one. So let me, let me talk a little bit about the path to the heart for a second by going back to Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul talking about how the call relates to the heart. He says 4 verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, listen to these words, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he goes on to describe the calling to which we've been called. He says, with all humility, with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. See, here, the idea of calling, it's it's about the way we walk toward God, the way we walk toward our heart, and then, as a result of that, how we walk toward one another. To be worthy of the calling is to walk in love. It's to walk in humility. It's to walk in patience and forbearance. It's, it's, it's interesting that the, the Greek word there for worthy means literally bringing into balance. Bringing into balance or making equivalent. You know, it conjures up the idea of a scale. And so the, the idea here, the, the idea of call here is, is that our call and the way we walk out our call is to bring our life into alignment with what God has said about us. The passage is saying to synchronize your walk with what the caller says about you. So, for instance, because of the cross, God looks down at his people and he says, You are declared righteous. Well, what this passage is telling us to do is bring into balance what has the the quality of your life with what has been declared over you. You are called and declared righteous. Now become righteous. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. You are seen by God to be pure because of the gospel. Well, this passage tells us now to bring into balance the quality of our life. Receive the call to purity so that the the scale comes up and it's in balance with how we are seen by God. We are united with Christ, so we are to be united with one another. The cross reminds us we are forgiven by Christ, so we're supposed to pass along forgiveness to others, to bring our life into balance. See, this is a particular doctrine. This doctrine of calling, it moves us in a direction. This is not one where we just say, hey, that's really interesting. I'd love to study more about that so that I can just think about it for hours and let it have no effect on my life whatsoever. When Paul starts using this doctrine of calling and says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, he immediately then smacks into humility. He goes to patience, forgiveness, bearing with one another in love. The call is to synchronize our hearts with what God has called us to be. 
And we see this in different parts of Scripture happening all the time where God makes a declaration and then the man or the woman becomes what God has declared him to be. I mean, you know that fascinating story story in Judges chapter 6, the man Gideon who is found tucked away on a farm winnowing because he's hiding from his enemies, the Midianites, And he doesn't want to be seen. He just wants to get away. He's fearful. He's running. And an angel appears before Gideon. And this is what he says. The Lord is with you, O man of valor. You know, Gideon's listening to that. And he's like looking around like, who are you talking to? And and Gideon hears these words. And then, true to form... Gideon begins to dispute with the angel as the angel is talking about what God wants to do. And Gideon's saying, no, he can't do that. He doesn't understand. This is the way that's happening. This is the lay of the land right now. This is where the people are. But then the rest of that story in Judges is about how God worked to transform Gideon and to bring his heart and his life in alignment with the calling that was made over him. So as you see Gideon towards the end of his life, you see a man whom the Lord is with. You see a man of valor. Why? Because Gideon became in reality what God had declared him to be. He walked in a manner worthy of the calling to which he was called. So, So this summons to service moves us down a path, and it's a path toward the heart. But there's a second path as well, and that is a path toward work. That's a path that moves us into the world. It's a path that moves us towards other people. It's a path that God gives us to deploy the gifts and the passions that he has placed within us. It allows us to do good works. I'm thinking about that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where, where it says that there are good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So, so before you're born, God prepares these good works. You're born, and He calls you to walk down a path and to find these good works that He prepared all the way back then. So to put this in the simplest terms, this is just God saying, hey, there's work to be done. There's work to be done. The summons to service is a summons to use our roles and our place and our gifts to bring glory to God. And and we've kind of waded into this already in some of the opening messages as we saw God in Genesis as the first worker and the greatest worker and how he creates everything and he pronounces it good. And then how he turns and he kind of, he invites his kids into the family business. And he tells us, you know, go and and do the same. Go and cultivate. Go and reproduce. Go and and work within creation, exercise dominion. See, you know, remember, God could have just snapped his fingers and and made babies. You know, he didn't need us to procreate. God could have snapped his fingers and created beautiful gardens. 
He did it in the Garden of Eden. He could have just decided, well, I'm going to roll that way. In fact, that's easier than getting the humans involved. He could have snapped his fingers so that our cars don't need fixing. But he doesn't do it that way. He, He calls us to work. He calls us to cultivate. He calls us to create. And so this summons to service announces something about us. It announces that we are custom made by our Creator to fill a place, to serve a purpose. That there are these specific, Ephesians 2, good works that God prepared beforehand, not just for your family in general, or your group, or your posse, but for you alone to walk in so that you might work in them. It's custom made for you. In other words, your existence is not random. Your life was not unplanned. Even if if parents didn't plan you, your life was not unplanned. Your life is not without meaning. When I was a new believer, we had this song we sang. It was called, I Have a Destiny. It was kind of a schmaltzy song and maybe a little bit man-centered. But but it, it gave... It gave a truth which is true and needs to be sung out more often because it acknowledges something that we often ignore. And that is, I have a destiny. I know I should fulfill it. I've got a destiny. I've got a reason. I've got a purpose. There's some reason. I was born for some divine purpose. There are good works that I and I alone can do, that I'm called to. So the question comes, how do we find those good works? How do we find our calling? Should I be a mechanic? I don't know. What am I supposed to do? How do I know what God is calling me to do? Well, here's, here's three questions I want to give you. and we'll, I'll offer these and then we'll wrap up. But these are three kind of diagnostic questions that you can think about as you think about this question of calling. First, How am I endowed? How am I endowed? In other words, as created beings, we are hardwired with certain strengths, certain weaknesses. We have certain gifts. Some of them are spiritual gifts. What's Paul say to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7? To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one. So we have gifts. Some of, them are experience, uh, some of them are spiritual. None of them are accidental. And these gifts often signal a path that God invites us down. God invites us to travel down so that we can find roles or service or something that is compatible with the way God has created us, something that is compatible with our gifts. And so our gifts are an important component in it, that how I am endowed is important. So it's like growing up, you know, with... Imagine you grow up with a baseball mitt in a country that has never known baseball. Nobody knows baseball. Nobody's ever seen a baseball. You have a baseball mitt... One day you travel to another country and you see, for the first time in your life, a baseball game, 
and you discover the sport to which your equipment belongs. See, the, the question of endowment, how, how am I endowed, helps to match our equipment to our roles, our equipment to our service. And so we have to walk down the path of endowment and ask that question. Here's the second question. How am I endowed? Second question. What have I experienced? What have I experienced? See, this question recognizes that there is a road that we have all walked, that we've already traveled, a road where we acknowledge that God has ordained our past, good and bad, that He has ordained what has taken place. And we also acknowledge that the past has influenced us in a very significant way. You come from a broken home. You had a wayward sibling growing up. You had a brother or a sister that was just off the, off the rails. You had a wealthy father. You had an uncle in rehab. You had, you know, the, these different things that influenced you in ways at times we're not even fully aware of. Paul's education under Gamaliel. Luke's training as a physician. Timothy, raised in a home with an unbelieving father, Greek father, Jewish Christian mother. See, the, the idea here is that our calling is vitally connected to our story. That we can't conceive of calling without examining our story. And that this path that God has marched us down already and brought us through, there are specific reasons why He's walked us down that path. There are things that could be achieved in your life and in your heart in no other way than the path that God has walked you down. There are ways that you are sympathetic. There are ways that your heart has been tenderized. There are convictions that you have that are very deep and very solid. There are longings that remain unsatisfied because you come from another place and this never feels like your home. And you feel the echo of heaven in that. There's all kinds of things that God does in, that, in the past. And so we have to look, we have to examine this question of what have I experienced? Because it helps us to understand who I am and how I got this way. And those are crucial questions when identifying a calling. So, how am I endowed? Secondly, next, what have I experienced? And lastly, what do I enjoy? What do I enjoy? See, God did not create us as, as lifeless, dispassionate beings that really have no desires, that really have no vested interest. On the contrary, we are, we are passionate, we have desires, we have aspirations and ambitions. There are things we feel deeply. There are things that draw us. In an almost irresistible way, our interests, our reading, our affections, things that we elicit pleasure from, things that we enjoy and feel irresistibly drawn to do, things we feel even God's pleasure as we do them. I call this the Eric Lytle factor, the Eric Lydell factor. Remember Eric, Eric Lydell? He was the guy that ran Chariots of Fire and he has that famous quote, God made me fast, he said, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
What is it that you do when you, that you feel God's pleasure? What is it that you do, that you enjoy, that in doing it, you become aware of the pleasure of God? See, this, this question realizes that, that passions and ambitions can help reveal calling. Because when desires marry the pursuit that we go on, a calling can surface. So the question of, of enjoyment asks, what pursuits bring us the greatest pleasure for the utmost glory? So, am, how am I endowed? What have I experienced? What do I enjoy? Those are just some ways to get at this question of what are we called to serve in? What are we called to do here in this place that God has called us to be? So the question of, is my mechanic called to that question? The answer becomes clear. Oh, you bet he is. I mean, he is called to follow the Savior. He is called to serve the Savior. He is gifted to fix cars. He loves what he does. He's giving God glory in the way that he's doing it. And here's the thing. You know, on that final day, when we are all spread out before the throne of God, it may well be the mechanics and the stay-at-home moms and the accountants, and the teachers, and, and that individual that had vision to leave a career so that they could take care of their ailing parents. It may be those people that are seated closest to Jesus. Not because they knew all about the doctrine of calling and they thought, oh, I'm going to apply this in an incredible way. But simply because they lived it. Simply because they applied it even when they didn't necessarily understand it. They were faithful to serve and glorify God right where they were. Right where they are. And so, may God help us all work and serve today with that final day in view. Let's pray.